it is okay to to move in a direction for something that you're you don't know everything about okay mm -hmm. but i do think there should be elements of it that you need to know a lot about and you you need to be able to surround yourself with others that know about the areas that you don't know about Hey everyone, this is Devin Miller here at another uh, episode of The Inventive Journey. I am your host, uh, Devin Miller, um, founder and uh, CEO of Miller IP Law, where we help startups and small businesses with patents and trademarks, um, and uh, also a bit of a serial entrepreneur and love to talk about uh, talk with other entrepreneurs and uh, startups about their journey and what they've done. So today we have a great guest on, uh, John Rom. And uh, he will talk a little bit about uh, his inventive journey to give you the very high highlights. Uh, he is a he did his first startup from 2017 to 2018, so for uh, what, 11 years, and uh, raised a good amount of money. Did an exit, and now he's on to his next startup. And so, um, with that, I will. That's as much introduction as I'm going to give you, so that you can tell your story a whole lot better than I can. But welcome on, or welcome on, John. Well, Devin, appreciate it very much. So thank you very much for having me. And uh, yeah, so, you know, I, like others, you know, it started off uh, in a career uh, that was basically centralized around media and entertainment and the um, contribution and distribution of content. And um, I did that. It was related to satellites and fiber and uh, telephone operators, et cetera. And then, uh, as you appropriately stated, in 2007, uh, founded my first business, and it was all around content aggregation, uh, rate shape, metadata insertion, and distribution uh, of content, both linear and on-demand content for cable head ends, telephone operators, and over-the-top providers. Uh, so if I, if I jump in, because for those that are less technical, we'll break that down for, that would almost be Netflix before it was Netflix. Is that a fair assessment or what, how would you characterize that? Well, Netflix is a distributor of content, right? So for all of us who know them, they started out with DVDs in your mailbox. Um, and now they're providing streaming services, you know, depending upon, you know, those orientation that could either be over the top, meaning that it goes directly as a cord cutting approach mm -hmm. or bottom which becomes the supplemental content to existing content cable operators have but the point you're making which is the right point which was this was the way to get rich content prepared for consumption on second and third screen opposed to just the television set um, when you date back to 2007 that's fairly early on for that what and I didn't you know I should know this because I just actually read a book about Netflix but what year did they start with streaming Right on or about that time period, 2008 time period, um, the beginning of their stages was really mired uh, in legalese of could they get throughput to the home? And throughput to the home, was it going to happen because the cable company was going to share some of its bandwidth or was it going to have to appeal to, you know, Congress and lawmakers to give them access? And then once that started to happen, then the distribution of uh, DVDs to the mailbox could go away and the real business could really get going. No, that's interesting. So yeah. uh, now jumping back to your business. So you, you sure. it sounded like you differentiated and we'll get into what you're doing a little bit later as, as of today after that first visit. So sure. stay on that for just a minute. So it sounded like you're doing content aggregation as opposed to the streaming. So what it, you know, is there a difference there or, or what were you guys doing there? You know, was it, 
Netflix did it better than you guys or do you guys just failed or did you guys have a different business or how did that go and kind of where did that go for you? No, we, we were the engine uh, that was preparing the content for delivery for the likes of a Netflix or a Roku or an Apple TV, uh, but more appropriately for the client base, we were servicing 97% of the cable industry and a portion of telephone operators, AT&T's U-verse or, um, you know, Verizon Fios. So, you know, it, that just happened to be our client set opposed to new entrants to the market. Okay. No, that makes sense. Yeah. So if I were to do that, and I, I think when we talked a little bit, it's kind of almost a, a bit of a, a difference between how you did your first startup versus the, the one you're on now is on this one, if I remember right, you did a, you raised quite a bit of money and then eventually did an exit. Is that right? Yeah. So, so that business, because there was such a large amount of content that needed to be repurposed, um, it required a significant amount of capital to be able to have the workflow management to handle that amount of uh, throughput. And so in that business, we did, we raised a substantial amount of capital um, upwards near about $85 million when it was all said and done. It just was a different approach. It was what that business model needed. Um, it's when we've been far more frugal in our approach. We've, we've raised about $12.5 million to date. Um, we haven't used institutional money uh, per se. And this one, it's been more family offices, a bit of institutional venture debt. For the most part, it's just a different model and a different need. So if I were to do that, because that's the one that, you know, if you were to, or a couple of things will dive in, and I want to get to your story, but I, this is also, I think, pretty interesting. You sure. get, so 80, I think you said 85 million, right, for the first, uh, first startup or the last one. Um, and, you know, first of all, everybody always thinks, oh, you raised a ton of money. That means you're rich, right? You, you have <laughs> huge paychecks and you have nice cars and you have the company jet and everything else. And I assume, maybe that's correct, but I assume that's not correct. So when you do that, how does, you know, first of all, how did you raise that much money or how do you go about finding those people that are going to invest in you? And then what do you actually do with that money when you get, when you hit those kind of hurdles? Right. So um, I, I'm not sure if what you explain uh, is other people's uh, way of, of being able to do it. It was not mine. <laughs> okay. Uh, <laughs> And I will let you know that the, the money that was raised for that was specifically relate, was raised uh, for the business itself. And, and it was used in that fashion. So it was around uh, making sure that we had the right kinds of people with the right levels of expertise and professionalism. Um, and it required a significant amount of hardware and software. And, um, and, and you needed to be a company that had longevity and comfort around the amount of money in to be able to do business with the kind of customers you were doing business with. And so it required that kind of a money raise. It was not uh, money that was used for individual benefit outside of the fact that, you know, we all paid ourselves um, our salaries and what we did. But, you know, I would like to think that we worked really hard to make sure that we earned the monies that we were. Um, so no company jet then? There was no company jet. No, no. We we spent a significant amount of time, especially early on, um, on you know spending a lot of time on middle seats, going from Washington D.C. to Seattle, where one of our uh, investors was, and uh, California. And then, a matter of fact, um, that business different than this one. Uh, not totally different, but somewhat different in the sense that we had acquired five to six companies in as many years. So it was pretty much a roll-up strategy, which mm -hmm. also some of that uh, monies to be able to do it. Um, Roll-up strategy would be going around acquiring other businesses that can then integrate or you can or roll into what you're doing, right? 
Right. And you would hope that those companies give you additional market share and capability. Um, and you also hope that it's accretive in the sense that you're able to, you know, either gain enough revenue that one plus one equals three and not two. Mm-hmm. Um, or you're able to take out enough cost that that it's uh, accretive in the sense that it's very profitable to, to what you're doing. So um, that was the mentality behind that business at a time period where there was a lot of people out there that either had content or had a relationship with cable head end providers from a software hardware standpoint. And if you start to, you know, amass those different companies and put it together, you basically are getting market share and delivery. Okay. No, that, that makes perfect sense. Some of those, I just trying to make sure that the terminology for listeners that may not be as familiar of it, that they can get an idea of what that means. So that, that's of a course. great explanation. So thank you. Um, so then I think you said around 2014 or that you were, you decided to leave the company. They're doing a bit of remanagement and then eventually got acquired. Tell me a little bit about, you know, or let's walk through a little bit about kind of how that worked as far as you kind of got towards the end and you're saying, okay, I'm ready for my next venture, ready for my next thing. And how did you make that transition or decision and how did you go on to your next venture? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, first of all, there's a lot in that question, right? So, um, you, know, you know, the first thing that happens is, you know, we, we had a large institutional uh, investor uh, in the name of Carlisle Group who came in in 2012. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, them alongside with the early stage venture group, um, you know, they, they had a little bit of uh, their own opinions of what the future was going to look like. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, we had talked a little bit about the roll up just a moment ago, and it was clear that there wasn't going to be much more of that going on. Um, and, and, you know, they wanted to do a, a management transition and, um, you know, and they did so. And, and, you know, it's, look, it's not an easy thing for entrepreneurs to recognize that their sort of chapters over and it's time to move on. Um, but I do think it's an important, you know, lesson for people who are entrepreneurs who are getting into it that, you know, it is about, um, you know, your, you know, your shares, your options, your investment, what you're given to grow the business. And if there's somebody out there who can drive the business for that next chapter um, and make your value in the business as good or better, um, you know, you have to understand that, that, you know, it's certainly worthwhile giving that a look. And that's what happened here. So um, they had brought in uh, somebody who was going to run the company and she had been working at Warner Brothers for a long period of time and um, had some thoughts and ideas of where to take the business. And so that's what she did. And, uh, um, she ultimately was, a, ultimately was able to take that business to exit in early 18, as you said. Um, and, you know, for me, um, you know, I was able to take 2014 to think about what was next and, um, you know, operate properly within my non-competes, non-solicitations, which is an important message for other people as well. Um, mm-hmm. Sure that you adhere to those things and do what you need to do. Um, but then in early 2015, March of, early, of 2015, uh, another opportunity presented itself to me, and that was venue ties. Okay. So if I did unpack that, because there's a lot in there, right? So there is. unpacking that. So if you just say, you know, so was it a lot of people, if you get, if you get in too far enough and just end a founder or startup, eventually it seems like, you know, a couple things happen. One is the company outgrows you or you outgrow the company, right? In the sense that one is, one is, you know, I'll back that up a little bit. One is, is, Hey, you know, some people are very good at startups and they can, you know, figure out how to solve the problems, how to enter a new market, how to build a company. And the company gets so big and they're saying, okay, we really need a different skill set to take the company to the next level, which is one thing. And the other could be is, hey, I, 
I like to do startups. I like to do small businesses. That's what I enjoy. I enjoy solving those problems. And when it gets to a bigger thing, I don't want to do that anymore. It loses the fun for you, right? And so, you know, how did you, and I don't, you know, it kind of sounds like a little bit of both. How did you decide, okay, it's time for me to move on, or I, I'd like to, is it, was it kind of more of they decided it was time for you to move on, or you decided it was time for them, or kind of a mixture, or, uh, you know, something of that nature? Well, I, I think literally, okay, um, I think they ultimately decided, okay. But I, I think uh, fundamentally, if you play out from 2012 to 2014, mm. um, you know, I, I had moved from my chief operating role, meaning the day-to-day -day business, and I had been doing more business development on what was next and how to extend into different geographies and where to take the business next. Mm. Uh, it spent a stint of about a year living in um, London and, and running the last acquisition the company had made in on-demand group um, and managing that and looking for other acquisition opportunities. Um, I, I had, you know, I've been traveling substantially and, and looking at where the business could grow in other situations. And, you know, as I said, it was kind of clear that, you know, there's probably wasn't going to be too much more of that behavior that was going on. Um, and, you know, you're, you're right in concept, Devin, which is, you know, from a high level perspective, either you decide you've outgrown them or they decide for you. But I think there are some other uh, building blocks in there also, which is there's some geographical stuff. I was living on the East Coast and the company was primarily being based out of the West Coast at those at that time period. And, um, you know, you, you, we had run the business for 2014, you know, normal startups normally have some sort of transaction inside that window and it hadn't happened. So, you know, I don't think it's quite as black and white as either, you know, it was time for me to go or they felt like it was time for me to go. I think, you know, you just kind of live a lifeline on it and you get to a point where, um, you know, quite candidly, it's in the best interest of the business to get some new ideas, thoughts and blood into it. And it's probably all right for those people who brought it, you know, as far as they did. Um, my co-founder and partner had left in 2012. So, you know, it just happens that way. I just think that's part of the deal. No, and, and life is very seldom black and white. So right. it's always easy to try and simplify down and that's never how life is. So, so you do that, you, you, you make the exit or, you know, you, you transition out, you have the NDA, you wait it out for, you know, about a year. And then you say, okay, I'm ready for my next business, right? You know, I'll wait, wait it out the NDA or sorry, not the NDA, the non-compete, yep. get ready to going. And then how did you land on kind of what was your next thing or what the next thing you wanted to do? Right. Well, you know, so uh, this is a bit of the storyline. So in the prior venture that we just finished talking about, uh, that was actually my business idea and found a partner because I felt like I needed somebody who was going to help me in areas that uh, were not my expertise. And that was fundraising. And at the time, that's how I found my business partner uh, at the time, a gentleman by the name of Ramu Paterazu. So in this specific situation, this business idea uh, was originally born from my current business partner in the name of Carrie Zaremba. And she had come to me, you know, asking for some help and support, ironically, to help raise some capital and do some stuff after I had done that. Mm -hmm. And you know, I looked at the business uh, opportunity and I saw different aspects of it that she saw that, um, you know, I found really interesting. And so between the two, you know, she was really interested in the utility pieces of, you know, how to get started here. I was really interested in that sort of next generation of gamification and, and uh, distribution of unicast over broadcast content. And between the two of us, we felt like we were a good match. And so that's why we started it. 
So give everybody maybe just the 30 second or, you know, whatever overview of what, what's the new business or what are you guys working on or what have, what have you been building? I think since 2015, right? What have you guys been building up? Yeah. So, so venue ties is a platform and it's a technology platform uh, that focuses on basically four major areas, right? So it fo- focuses on deep level integration between a multiplicity of technology partners and companies um, and within that deep level integration, uh, it's incredibly focused on personalization. What do we know about the consumer and um, how do we gain that information and knowledge uh, through the data and analytics that are presented? And then we layer onto that contextual awareness. Where is that consumer and when they're in that location? What do we know their buying behavior is? And then, of course, the commerce platform and the, uh, the loyalty and mobile wallet. So and you tie that together and you put it together with... Uh, 175 plus deep level integrations. Um, we're a company where our platform is married off um, with a UI UX, meaning an application storefront. Um, so whether that's something that we uh, provide or we use third parties to integrate into. Um, and we basically make larger venues smarter by using uh, the mobile handset and mobile first technology. So we do that within three major verticals, uh, one of which is sports and entertainment. So large professional venues, um, either sporting events or concerts or other live events, uh, downtown district areas. So a microcosm of smart city IOT play um, and then gaming and, and casinos and the tie together between what happens in hospitality and gaming and casinos. And then ultimately uh, between those verticals, using the bricks and mortar of the sports book tying together to day of betting and, and uh, gamification. So hopefully I didn't go too fast. I'm happy to dwell down on any area that you'd like me to, but I uh, just wanted to provide that overview. So, all right, I'll try and simplify it. And I'll probably slaughter it, but we'll give it a go. So if I were to say it basically aggregates what would be different sports and other uh, event venues to make it in a single place and then gamification. I know that in general, but maybe dive into what is it? Because gamification, in my understanding, is is more of, hey, you almost make it kind of like a game, name words, you know, you almost make it so people are incentivized or you're wanting them to interact longer, you're wanting them to be on your app longer, use it more often and make it kind of almost that game where you're having incentives to always play longer, do more things. So how do you kind of, what does that mean as far as gamification versus aggregating? Right. So, so let me, let me take that lead in that you're kind enough to provide me and then let me do some justice to, um, to really why we got started and, and what we were trying to solve. Right. And I think in a lot of ways, as we had discussed uh, prior in this, um, uh, in this podcast, we had, we had essentially talked about how were we going to make products and services of entertainment better in the living room in the household. Mm. It was completely flipping it on its head. And this is how to get people out of their living room and going back to venues and events. <laughs> and what we recognized very early on was the inhibitor to doing that was the first part, which was really the uh, brainchild of my business partner and, and what Carrie wanted to solve, which was the utility aspect of it. It, it was a literal pain in the neck to go to events, right? It's mm. the traffic, it's the parking, it's even, you know, getting the tickets and transferring tickets to other people if that day was not a good day for you. Mm. Uh, 
all the cumbersome aspects of actually getting to the event, getting through the right turnstile and not walking in through the wrong gate area and then understanding wayfinding and mapping and, you know, how do you understand wait times when you have to go to the, you know, men's room or the women's room or, you know, order food and beverage, you know, all the utility pieces. Um, but the second aspect of it was the aspect of how do you actually go to an event and change that lean back experience of entertain me to that lean forward experience of how am I entertained when I'm going to watch an event? And one of the areas that we think is um, critically important to that lean forward aspect of, you know, providing a more, you know, uh, interactive ex example of it is gamification. Who's going to score the next basket? Is the next play going to be a running play or a passing play? How do we support the local sponsors? And so if it's um, a sponsorship for, you know, the pizza company, how do you do the, you know, the, the virtual pizza toss opposed to chucking a, a pizza in somebody's lap and all of a sudden recognizing you've just spilled food all over them. Uh, <laughs> you know, digitizing all the behavior of that lean forward experience so that your consumers are immersed in the event and then giving them the opportunity either on their way into the event or on their way out that the venue in which they're going to is wrapped around a larger district for entertainment and food and beverage and, you know, safety and comfort around that area and that you're using and repurposing your loyalty points and what you've earned as a customer that's appreciated by the teams or the venues or um, the leagues. Okay. No, that, that gives a lot of great insight. So right. could dive a whole lot deeper in the technology, but we'll almost leave that there. So I'm going to, I always have my last two questions, but my question before my last two questions. So yes, this one that we kind of talked a little bit about before the podcast was almost opposite of your first in a lot of ways. And I get one is getting people to kind of stay in their house and watch things getting out, but also on the kind of the institutional investors and how you decided to raise money and fund it and do reoccurring revenue and all that. So kind of, you know, a, a short overview, how did you decide which or how to, to fundraise and how to actually monetize and, and, and make this a profitable company and maybe keep a little bit more control and, and do it a little bit less conventional? Well, you're right. We did discuss this a little bit before. So, you know, I, I, um, I'll repeat a little bit of it and hopefully give it a little bit of a, a new flair so that you don't uh, feel like, you know, you're, you're not getting your money's worth here. But, you know, what I would say is, um, you know, for, for a lot of entrepreneurs out there is, look, you, you know, you have to be willing to get it wrong to ultimately, you know, get it right at some point in time. Um, and, and so like the biggest mistakes that you can make is not making any decisions at all. Right. So, yeah. you know, one of the things that I really learned, uh, the first time I went through this, uh, to this time is there's a difference between fundraising and governance. Okay. And in concept, I knew it, but by behavior, I didn't really understand it. Um, and, and so I, I think, you know, you have to take a look at your business model and understand what kind of capital you need. Um, and then you also have to decide what kind of capital you want because they're two different things mm. and you got to give yourself a little bit of wiggle room in there to be able to operate within what you need versus what you want. Um, you also need to make sure you surround yourself at the board level with people who are highly supportive of what you're trying to accomplish and, and are to listen to the feedback from management who's running the business every day. Um, but you also need to protect yourself a little bit with governance and understand, you know, how you can use, 
um, your board to be able to drive decisions for the business that's right for the people who are supporting the business, your client base, and, and continue to give your business the opportunity to grow and not stunt it. Hmm. No, I think that's all. There's a lot, lot in there, and I think there's a lot of good advice in the sense. I, I the one I'll pick on is that I think you know there's a difference between easy money or money you could take versus money you should take, and you know too often you're saying, hey, money, any money on the table is the money I'll take because we need the money versus, but it, there's always you know handcuffs or things that come along with the money, and sometimes you know good money and you can get good investors and people that are there for the long haul, willing to build a business, have the same vision. And others, you get the money and, you know, money's, money does spend and it's still green, but then you're saying, okay, now I'm getting pulled in different directions that I want to go, or I'm losing control of the company that I started or anything else. So I think that there's a lot of wisdom in if and when and how you take money, not just taking money because it's there. Yeah, I, I know this is not part of your question. I know we're getting to the end, so I'll try to do it quickly. But I will tell you, uh, in April of 2019, which is kind of amazing based upon where we were in April of 2020, mm. uh, we actually walked away from an investment uh, that was, you know, about $9 million. Uh, and, you know, we walked away because we weren't sure the terms were the right terms for the business. We were next to positive. They weren't the right terms for the shareholder base that had already been there. Uh, and we just didn't think that's what the business really needed. And, but to your point, the bigger decision was we were well confident that it was going to pull and tug the business in a different direction than where it should have been gone. And, you know, so yeah, it's really hard to walk away from money, but I think in retrospect, it was the right move. All right. Well, I think that, that's some great, or great insight and advice. So, okay, well, we're, we're hitting the end, as you mentioned. Yep. So I'll, I'm going to ask my last two questions that I always ask at the end of the podcast. So the first one is what was the worst business decision you ever made? You know, um, I, I'm going to take the question. I'm going to, I'm going to wordsmith it just a little bit better for me. I hope you, you're going to let that happen. So, sure. you know, I, I, I kind of, I spent some time thinking about the worst business decision and, and, you know, where I'd like to come back to it is I, I would like to say one of the things I wish I had done a better job at doing. How about that? That works. So, yeah. So thank you for, for latitude. <laughs> sure. Um, you know, one of the things that, you know, and I've done it twice, really, which, you know, shame on me, but I wish I had done a better job at educating my family and my wife specifically of, you know, what it really takes, you know, to truly be entrepreneurial all the way through. You know, I think I've been a little unfair there. Um, because, you know, for us that do it, and you mentioned you do it as well, you know, th there's such a, a an amount of undulation and peaks and valleys mm. a day. And we all manage it and we deal with it and we support it because that's what we do for a living. Mm. And you get home and you're tired and you don't want to talk about it. And so unfortunately, those that are most important, you they're not living it with you, you, you know, day in and day out. And they're only dealing with some aspects of the insecurity when you get to times where it's like it's time to run for money or you got to do something a little different. Yeah. Uh, I've tried to be cognizant of it. I've tried to do a better job at it. But that's an area where um, I, I could improve and should improve. And I wish I had handled it better. Hmm. No, I, I think there's a lot of that. I mean, it, the spouse is along for the ride, whether they want to be or not. And sometimes... You know, too often you you live it on a day to day, and you come home, and the spouse gets the less fun part of it, or they get to hear the stressful parts, or the things that aren't going well, or you don't want to talk about it because you're tired and you've had to deal with it all day, and you just want to relax. And it's oftentimes, you know, they get the brunt of it, whether it's not, it's always unfair. So I, I completely get that one. So yes, I mean, that, that's great advice. Okay, last question is if you're get someone that wants to get into a startup or small business or just starting out, what would be the one piece of advice you would give them? 
Well, that's hard, okay, to, to break down to one piece of advice because to your point, and you said it several times when we get into it, there's a lot there and I'm not sure there is a singular, you know, approach to any of this. But what I would say is, you know, it is okay to, to move in a direction for something that you're, you don't know everything about, okay? Mm-hmm. But I do think there should be elements of it that you need to know a lot about. And you, you need to be able to surround yourself with others that know about the areas that you don't know about, okay? Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I think the most dangerous aspect is, you know, either having holes in knowledge in your management team or hiring individuals who won't tell you what they don't know. Yeah. So as long as you know the information, you can make qualified decisions for it along the way. Mm. But it's really important to understand and face the facts and not be afraid to address those issues. No, I think that's some great. And, and too often, especially if you're, if you're anything like me, and I'll just pick on myself, is you always think you know a lot more than you know, or that, you're, or that you're, you can do it all, or you can, you, know, you, can, you can figure it out type of a thing. And yet, too often time that handicaps things in the sense that, one, you don't know everything. And even some of the things you do know, you can't do it all, so to speak. And you're better to get people that can do a better job and make, you know, get those things done, cover them up, bring them up, or, you know, get them covered, bring them on the board, on board. And it makes a huge difference. So I think that that's a great point of advice. Well, yeah, great. I, 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 I'll go ahead. I, I self-evaluate endlessly. Okay. And I have tried to, you know, improve my listening skills and take on board other people's opinions and thoughts you know, I, I still very much run a company and, and I set the, the vision and I move towards it. Um, but, you know, I can't sit here and tell you that every idea and thought are mine and that's where they came from. There's a lot of smart people that helped me get along the way. No, I'm, I'm in complete agreement. So, well, there's always way more things that I want to discuss and we ever have time to and we've reached the end of the podcast. But thank you for coming on. It's been an absolute pleasure. It's been fun to hear what, uh, what, what you've done. Um, and now where you're at and what you're up to now. So um, wh- if people are interested, whether it's investing or getting involved or being a customer that what's the best way to reach out to you? Um, the best way to reach out to me is, is on email, which is J R O M M at venue ties, which is V is in Victor E is an elephant and is in Nancy. U is in United States. E is an elephant. T is in Tom. I is in Ingrid. Z is in zebra. E is an elephant.com. All right. That was great. Now everybody knows. Right. Perfect. Well, for everybody that's listening that would like to either be a customer, get involved or otherwise uh, reach out, uh, be sure to hit John up. And I think that uh, it, it's a great business and a great company. And we're glad to have you on um, for other, for everyone else. If you're looking for any help with uh, trademarks, patents or anything else, uh, legal advice, feel free to hit us up at Miller IP law. We're always here to help startups and small businesses. And if you're looking to be a guest on the podcast, certainly feel free to reach out. Um, we'd love to have you on if you have a great journey to tell. And you can just go to inventivejourney.com. Thanks again, John, for coming on. It's been a fun time and wish we had more. But maybe we'll have to have you on again in the future and check, on, or check out how things are going for you. We'd like to be able to do that, Devin. So thanks so much for having me. Stay healthy in these time periods and uh, appreciate you having me. All right. <laughs>